in a Scottish coastal village where vessels were known to go out to sea and stay away for a long time, then come back ashore. On one of those occasions, a certain vessel had been out to sea for quite some time, and then they were coming home, and they got near shore, and they began to gaze. The sailors began to gaze and look on land and see the loved ones waving. The skipper, with the benefit of binoculars, was able to see with clarity who was there, and, and he kept on yelling out names to the sailors, and, and he said, I see Bill's Mary, I see Tom's Anne, and I see David's Margaret. And one of those sailors became so concerned and anxious at heart because his wife's name was not mentioned. He became very worried and eager to head home and find out if she's okay. So as soon as they docked, this particular sailor ran up the hill with a heavy heart and wondering if there's something wrong with his loved ones and his wife, and opened the door of the cottage. And immediately his wife ran to him, and she said, Oh, I've been waiting for you. He said, Yes. But the other wives were watching for them. They were watching. I wanted to keep that word in mind, watching. I'm going to explain it several times as I go along today. Watching. What does it mean to be watching? On this fourth and the last in the series of messages from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, the signs of the end of time, the signs of His return, Matthew 24. This is the last in this series. And here there is a contrast. In fact, there are going to be several contrasts in this message, so I hope that you don't miss those. Several contrasts, but the first contrast that you see right here is between verses 33 and 36. In verse 33, he said, you know. You know. In 36, he said, no one knows. I'm going to come back to that. You know what? He said, you know when you see these signs that the end is near. Well, we saw the six signs of the labor pains. We saw how they're going to be increased in false teaching and false teachers and false messiahs. And I tell you, when you read today's news, my goodness, you feel we're there. We're there. The majority of Christians in America today, according to George Barner, between the ages of 18 to 39, the vast majority think that Jesus does not differ from Buddha, Muhammad, and Krishna. 
Beloved, the Bible makes it very clear that one of the greatest signs of nearness of the end is apostasy. Apostasy is the departure from the faith. This is not atheists and agnostics. These people who pretended to be Christians for so long, they were professing Christians for so long, but then they depart from the faith. We're seeing that literally every week in the news. Watchfulness doesn't mean you put on white robes and head for the mountain and look up the sky. Watchfulness means, and I'm going to explain that again and again, working and serving and doing. And so, what is that contrast I mentioned? The contrast is between verse 33, you know, verse 36, nobody knows. And that's the first verse of our section today. You know, no one knows. You know, no one knows. The contrast is between you know and no one knows. Don't miss this. Don't miss that contrast. It's very important. We do not know the exact time, the exact date, the exact hour of the return of the Lord. Ah, but we know when it's around the corner. Today I want to look at the passages beginning at verse 36 to 51 of Matthew 24. And Jesus gives us three illustrations or three stories. And these three illustrations are emphasizing how suddenly and unexpectedly the return of Christ is going to be so sudden, be so quick and so fast. As we look at the remaining verses of 24 of Matthew, I want you to keep in mind the difference between the baby's birth, and that's the imagery that our Lord gave us in the very beginning, right? The baby's birth and the thief and the night. Keep those imagery in your mind. The baby's birth is expected. The thief in the night is not. In my simple way, I see the true believers, those who love the Lord Jesus, those who are committed their life to Him, are like the family member of a pregnant woman. They are expecting the great event. They are looking forward to the great event. They are anticipating that great event. They're waiting for that great event. They do not know when or what hour <laughs> but they are expecting. The professing Christians and the non-believers, they will be in a state of shock when they suddenly wake up and their most valuable possession, which is their soul, is gone is lost. And so with that kind of brief background, let's look at the passage. I hope you already got it, and if those of you do not have uh, your own Bible, it's page 1539 in the Pew Bible, grab one in front of you, page 1539, 24, Matthew 24, verses 36 to 51. Would you stand with me, please, in honor of the Word of God, and I will do what we have been doing throughout this series, 
and that is read verse 36, then you can read the rest of it. No one knows about that day or hour, nor even the angels in heaven. Here, I'm going to stop. Nor the Son. Remember, Jesus has not been resurrected and glorified yet when He was speaking on the Mount of Olives. He voluntarily surrendered the glory. He never surrendered His divinity. His divinity was never surrendered, but He laid aside His glory, the privilege of being co-eternal with the Father, coexisting with the Father. And that is why He says the Son, but now the Son knows. But at that point, He did not, voluntarily. And that's nor the Son, but only the Father. Now let me hear you, hear you beautiful voices. Father, in our culture, in our society, in our time, these are very hard words. But Father, this is the truth. And unless you, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who dwells in us, who authored these words, and preserve them for over 2,000 years so they can be with us today. Unless you speak, I confess, I am totally inadequate. For I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. As I said, our Lord gives these three illustrations.
or stories to emphasize the suddenness of his return. The first is the equivalence to the days of Noah. The second is the separation between believers and non-believers on that day. And the third is the thief who breaks at home, homes at nighttime while everybody's asleep. Then finally, he emphasizes the imperative for being faithful. And he distinguishes and contrasts between those who are faithful and those who are not. So first of all, the days of Noah. It is fashionable today among megachurch pastors in order to please the non-believing churchgoers, they say or deny the historic account of the flood and Noah. And they say, if you don't want to believe it, you don't have to believe it. Read my lips. Yes, you do. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. If Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God, who coexisted with the Father before all worlds, whom the Bible said, through whom and for whom the whole world is created, who was there in the time of Noah. When he says it happened, it means what? It did happen. Otherwise, you are questioning the integrity of the Savior. And how can you worship a Christ as your only Savior and Lord when you question His integrity? Do you understand why? God bless you. Thank you. Both Old and New Testament affirm the flood as a historical event that had taken place. The most important thing here that the Lord is emphasizing in this telling of the story, and telling us why it's going to be similarities between the days of Noah and the days of the return of the Lord, is the suddenness of it. It's going to be sudden for most people. Those who have rejected Noah's invitation to be saved and enter into the ark, they were taken by surprise. What were the days of Noah like? You've got to look back to the text. Genesis chapter 6. Let me tell you a few things. From Genesis chapter 6, it tells us, first of all, there was a rapid increase in population. The Word of God said, it came to pass that when men and women began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now listen to me, please. Increase in population is neutral. It's neither good or bad. Often, with increase of population comes an increase in moral decadence. Then there was an increase in knowledge. Knowledge used to multiply every few hundred years. Now they're multiplying every few months. Increase in knowledge contributes to wickedness, to self-indulgence, to complacency, to greed, and to demand for luxury. The Bible said there was also an increase in wickedness. The Bible said God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. 
and that every imagination of the thought of man's heart is only evil. In verse 38, Matthew 24, Jesus says that they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now listen to me. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking and marrying, okay? I'm going to explain that. But there is something deeply wrong when people are obsessed with food. There is an obsession with food. When people live to eat instead of eat to live, there's something seriously wrong. But listen, you don't have to be just obsessed with food for human food. Now there's an obsession with pet food. I read that we spend in the United States more money on pet food than the entire budget of the country of Uganda. In the same way, there's nothing wrong with marriage. The Bible makes it clear, and it's biblical, for heterosexual marriage and rearing of family. It is very biblical. But when biblical marriage is constantly come under attack by the courts, and now they're talking about some cases pending in the courts about how any two people, but any three people or four people can marry. That is the wrong obsession with the wrong marriage. Beloved, judgment could not be far away. Another characteristics of the days of now, which we're seeing today, literally with our own eyes, is the mockery of the preaching of biblical truth. In 2 Peter 2.5 says that while Noah was building the ark, inviting people to come and escape the judgment, they were mocking him, they were laughing at him, and they were ridiculing him. No doubt they thought that Noah lost it. He just lost it. They have never seen rain in that region of the world, let alone a flood. What is he talking about? And the Bible said that for 120 years, think about that, and he preached and he warned and he invited people to repent, but none of them would. They scoffed at him. They mocked him. In 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, it says, In the last days, scoffers will come scoffing, and following their own evil desires, they will say, Where is his coming that he promised ever since our fathers died? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, having the form of godliness, but deny its power. In 1 Timothy 4, 1, it says, there will be they will abandon the faith. You don't abandon the faith if you did not claim it at some point. He's talking about 
what we're seeing today of these pastors and musicians turning their back and they're saying they're going through deconstruction. They're not believing anymore. They will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things that are taught by demons. Listen to me. Universalism, which is, I'm going to come back to in a minute, is truly demonic teaching that has invaded the mainline denominations years ago and now inviting, invading the evangelical churches. It's a teaching of demons. Hear me right, please. When God shut the door of the ark, and, and listen carefully, the never says Noah shut the door. Because if Noah shut the door, he could have had some second thought. When he sees somebody, maybe a relative or a friend drowning, he will have the heart, he will try to open the door. No, no, the Bible said God shut the door. Nobody could open it. Just as, and that was too late, and just as the return of Christ will be too late, too late to repent, too late to believe, too late to come to Him. The second illustration our Lord uses here to emphasize the suddenness of His return is in the separation between believers and non-believers, between those who love the Lord Jesus and those who pretend to be Christians. Some people have created a doctrine out of that verse. They call it the secret rapture. Now, look, if you believe it, that's fine. You're not going to lose your salvation one way or the other. It's fine. But that's not the issue that Jesus is making here. That's not the point He's making here. The important lesson that Jesus is teaching is this. He is warning us… <laughs> that it is going to be sudden separation, two working together, two closely related to each other, two next-door neighbors, two may share office space, two roommates. One will go to heaven, the other one will go to hell. That alone, my friend, that alone should make everyone at the sound of my voice Everyone at the sound of my voice, do some soul searching. The professing Christians who think that all religion leads to heaven are going to be in a world of hurt, a world of hurt. Ex-church leaders saying that everybody's going to make it. God is not going to let anyone perish. Everyone is going to be saved. Everyone is going to go to heaven. It's preached from many a pulpit even to this day. They're going to be in a world of hurt. By this simple illustration, our Lord wants to disabuse them and disabuse us of this his heretical teaching. He wants to warn us and warns them against departure from the true gospel and believing that there will be the saved and the perishing. Our Lord is trying to disabuse them of that evil, demonic teaching of universalism. People often say, well, God is not going to send anyone to hell. Well, that's actually half-truth, because they're going to take themselves to hell. 
They're going to take themselves right there by themselves. God's longing, God's desire, God's wish, if you like, is that no one would perish. Why do you think he left heaven and came to earth, lived as he lived, died as he died, rose again, ascended into heaven, so that he may give everyone the opportunity to come and believe in him? Listen to me. No one, no one, no one, no one, no one in the Bible spoke more about hell than Jesus. Did you get that? No one spoke more about hell than Jesus himself. He even goes on to say in verse, 20, uh, verse 51, saying, when the master returns, he will cut down the unfaithful and send them where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you think I have joy in saying that, please understand, I don't. No one should. No one has a heart for the lost. See, in this illustration of the separation, our Savior, who paid with His blood for our salvation, is warning us that not everyone will be saved. Many will be lost. And listen, God is not a communist. God is not a socialist. He's not going to treat everybody equal. He, giving everyone a trophy is not the, 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 God, the God, of our, God of heaven and earth. God is going to separate the faithful from the unfaithful. That's why anyone at the sound of my voice must examine themselves. Am I in the faith? Am I in the faith? The third illustration that our Lord uses here is that of a thief at night. Now, you have to understand the Middle East. In the time of Jesus, certainly I remember as a boy too, growing up in the Middle East, that was common. You seldom get the house burgled during the day. There were not many thieves that come around during the daytime because always somebody's in the house. Uh, house being empty during the day is just unheard of. So generally speaking, robbers and thieves don't come in the daytime. That's why you now understand why at night. They always came at nighttime. Nighttime. These night thieves actually start by pushing on the door of a house or a shop. They kind of push on it gently first. They want to see in case the owner of the house forgot to bolt it. So that way, they can stealthily go in. Then even if it's bolted, they have ways of kind of breaking in quietly so that they would not have to wait. They don't beat the door down so they know they're going to, if they make a ruckus, they're going to wake people up. They don't do that. 
That's why he talks about the thief at night. They're more what we would call cat burglar. And that's why we say, see the same thought in 2 Peter. We see it in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, these two apostles, Peter and, and, and Paul, basically repeating what our Lord Jesus said. And in Revelation 3.3, 3, in the letter to the church in Sardis, listen to me, the letter to the church in Sardis, the letter to the church in Sardis. I'm going to repeat this. This is not to the agnostics and the atheists. This is not to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. <laughs> this is a letter to the church in Sardis. I want to keep making sure you understand as I read what it says. Here's what he said. If you do not wake up in time, church, I will come like a thief in the night. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Question. What does the thief come to steal? What does he come to steal? The trash? Well, the trash bag is outside. He can take it. Actually save them trouble. No. He comes for the valuables. The valuables, that which we consider the most valuable prized possession, that's what they're after. And that is why people place their valuables in, in a safety deposit box and have alarms, and, 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 and we, we insure our valuables with the insurance company, and we, 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 we don't leave them lying around carelessly, you know, come in and help yourself. We don't do that. Only careless people do that. Question, what can be more valuable possession than your soul. Your soul is the most valuable possession. And that is why Jesus asked the question, what can anyone profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I know some people get worried, sick about their possessions, their valuables, and whether it be money or gold or silver or jewelry or stocks or bonds. But should you not be more concerned about the most prized possession, your soul? And if your soul, which is your most prized possession, has been deposited in the greatest safety deposit box of all, the hands of Jesus, then you can sleep like a baby. The world be falling apart, but you're at peace. You're at peace because your most valuable possession, the most prized possession, is in His hand. It's in his hands. You have no worries, no fear, no anxiety. When you see the signs of the end of times, you're not worried at all. 
You have no anxiety when you see the signs of the, of the birth pains. Even when everyone around you is panicking, you're at peace. You're at peace. Why? Your most prized possession are in the very hands of the safest deposit box of all. In fact, that really motivates us to live more for Christ because we are at peace with Him, regardless of when Christ will return. You have your spiritual bags packed. And you heard me say this many times. I always say to the Lord, if it's today, I'm ready because I got my spiritual bags packed. Long time ago. It's more than that. It's more than It's watching. Not just waiting for Him, but watching. Verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know when. Verse 44, so you will also must be ready. In each of these three pictures, listen carefully, please, that our Lord uses here, He's stressing the suddenness, the suddenness of His return. In the picture of Noah and the flood, it reminds us that many will be lost. In the picture of the two men and the two women, Working in the field reminds us that we are not saved while being close to other saved people. It's an individual salvation. And thirdly, the picture of the thief in the middle of the night reminds us to be prudent about our souls, which are most prized possession. Finally, in verses 45 to 51, our Lord gives us another contrast. He's, I told you there's several contrasts in this passage. The faithful and the unfaithful. The watching and the oblivious. The faithful servant is not only ready at any time, but he or she is faithful in serving and doing and giving of themselves. In fact, it is there expectations of the return of the master that motivates them to be faithful in this life. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. That's why Jesus said, occupy till I come. He did not say, take it easy till I come. Put your feet up till I come. Say, here I am, send my sister till I come. Occupy. What's occupy means? Occupy means being busy, working, serving, witnessing, ministering to others. Till I come. And that's what he means by giving food in due season. You say, what, what food are you talking about? Spiritual food. Sharing with each other the Word of God, words of encouragement from the Word of God. Here's how God ministered to me through His Word today. Let me share it with you. Let me encourage you today. Let me minister to you today. And as we minister to one another, that's the kind of food Jesus is talking about. The unfaithful ones 
They're busy feeding themselves junk food. The unfaithful are busy attacking, criticizing, and they're beating up on the faithful. Send a text. Like the Scottish sailor I mentioned in the very beginning of the message, the faithful ones were watching. They were watching. The unfaithful, slouching, putting it off, maybe even give up. I want to conclude by sharing a fable with you. It's a fable, but it does make a point. I want to share it with you as I conclude, and I'll pray to God of anybody watching around the world or here in this beautiful building would really reflect on it. And again, I repeat, it's a fable. It says that there were three apprentice demons going through training program with an old devil. And the old devil was trying to figure out before he graduates them, what will they do to stop people from believing? Well, the first demon said, um, I try to convince them that there is no God. The old devil said, no, no, that won't work. Even atheists and agnostics, when they're all in the privacy of their own thought and not out performing, they know deep down, they look at the heavens, and they know there is a God. He failed him. The second demon said, uh, well, I just tell them there is no hell. He said, no. People instinctively, their conscience tell them there is a heaven and there is a hell, even when they don't admit it and they pretend that's not true and they publicly… He said, they know deep down there is a hell and there is a heaven. He failed him. Comes the third demon, apprentice demon, and he said, I will convince him, I'll convince him that there's plenty of time to believe. There's plenty of time. There is no hurry to do anything. Take it easy. There will always be time to get right with God. There's always be time to be faithful to God. But not now. Not now. He won the prize. He won the prize. And then the old devil said to him, you got it. Go out and ruin eternity for millions. My beloved friends, the Bible speaks about now. The hour is now. The day of salvation is today. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. The time for faithfulness is now. Lord Jesus. I don't even know how to pray, Lord. After such a message from your word, it's convicting me. And what I pray for myself, I pray for my beloved friends and those who are watching. Help us 
Empower us to be faithful, to be found among the faithful. Only you can do that through the power of your Holy Spirit. Forgive us past unfaithfulness. And may you turn a new page with each one of us. For Father, we know that when we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake, you don't only hear us, but you answer us. So we pray in His name. And all of God's people said, Amen.